is happening now. We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, what are you doing here? Why are you at school? Why are you at work? I am at work. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Lisa Poleski and Dave Woodard are in the newsroom. Will Weber is on the board. My New Year's resolution is to live the COVID dream to the fullest. Yeah. I don't know what that means either. Here's the COVID king, Scott Thompson. There you have it. When you do it live, we will be able to do that for a while. Hopefully we won't be able to do it for much longer. Hopefully we won't have to do it for much longer. Uh, good afternoon. It is 3.09. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber back at the uh, board. And Lisa Poleski and Dave Woodard, new member, replacing Ted. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Uh, joining us as uh, we continue on with the 2022 edition of uh, Hamilton Today. Heading into, uh, y- you know, uh, restrictions and stuff. The kids off till uh, like the 21st and, uh, you know. Uh, people are, uh, people are under, well, how do you feel? That's pretty much how everybody else feels. I mean, what can you do, man? What can you do? But I promise we are going to cheer you up. By the time I stop talking in minutes from now, we are going to put a, a massive smile on your face. It's going to be, you're, you're going to absolutely love what we're about to play for you. Because I thought, you know, considering where we are with all this, crap and, and and such you know we we need some cheering up and uh also I, I wanted to give you a little backstory here uh the thompson family has lived through covid and come out the other side and lived to tell and i'm here to tell you all that uh providing you're fully vaccinated you'll be just fine just like we were uh i don't know if i want to bore you with that right now but i'll tell you that story over the course of the the show and uh remember I, all i can say you know do you remember ted's last show on the 15th and i uh ted was so nice to say you sound like crap uh that's because i had covid (laughs) at that time didn't know it but uh a week later that's uh when the test came back and off we go so i'll tell you all that story and what happened and what the ride was like and 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 all that sort of stuff and and i I just want to say that uh if you're fully vaccinated which hopefully everybody is then um uh, we're going to li- learn to live with this. Let's just leave it at that. And I'll give you more of the story of the course of the afternoon. If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. All right, as you may or may not know if you're under a rock, uh, Betty White passed away over the weekend, uh, just shy of her 100th birthday. Saturday Night Live actually reran uh, an episode that she hosted, I believe, when she was 88, so 10, 11 years ago, 11 years ago anyway. And and, and I believe she got that job because there was a campaign that started on Facebook where, uh, you know, people just kept saying, hey, why doesn't she host the show? And then the next thing, it got so much traction, she was asked to host the show and, and did a great job as she did right up until, uh, as she was working, right up until her final years. Uh, let's bring in H. Allen Scott, host of Out on the Lanai. That's a Golden Girls Rewatch podcast and is with us now. H. Allen, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hello, thank you for having me. So, uh, why do you think this this actor endured so many decades uh, in the industry? And I was trying to think if there was anyone else who has, or you know. And I remember George Burns had quite a uh, a great run towards the end of his career, but I, I'm not sure he was as busy during the first half. Whereas Betty White just seemed to work all the time. 
Yeah, I mean, the only comparison, I think, probably is Cloris Leachman, who also died yeah. last year. You know, they worked right up until the end. And, and in many ways, I mean, what's so amazing about Betty White is she became huge, you know, after she was 50. Like, she was 50-something on the Mary Tyler yeah. Moore show. And she really just had this resurgence for the last part of her life. And it lasted for 40, 50 years. <laughs> And amazing to see her uh, and even the Saturday Night Live show that they aired this past weekend. It was over 10 years old, but still, man, was able to knock it out of the park and and do some pretty relevant young humor for this for the day. Yeah, I mean, and that's sort of what always made her so special is that she came off as this sort of, you know, sweet Midwestern lady. But really, she was kind of raunchy and and Mm. and fundamentally just what that made her so relatable, you know, that mix of sort of sweet but raunchy. And because we all have that and it's she was our best friend. And uh, amazing that the the run of shows that she had, uh, many of these great shows, standalone shows, shows on their own, and with some phenomenal cast, that, whether it was the Mary Tyler Moore show or or any of the Golden Girls or, or even uh, Hot in Cleveland and such. I mean, she, she, she held her own through all of these. She demanded respect in a very sort of like humble way, probably because, I mean, you watch all these Lifetime Achievement Awards that she got, the speeches that she gave over the last few years. And she's always saying, you know, she's just surprised that she's still invited to the party, which, of course, can you imagine someone not inviting Betty White to a party? But like, that's how that's what made her so amazing and humble is that she was just grateful to be included. And was married to Alan Ladd many, many, many years ago. And I believe he hosted the game Password, if I'm yeah. uh, not mistaken. And and obviously, uh, madly in love, the two were. He passed away and she never remarried. Surprised. Annie, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, she never remarried. I mean, she'd, she'd go on a lot of talk shows in like the 80s and 90s and, and sort of joke about dating and her sex life and all of that and how she had a very active sex life, which I don't think necessarily was true. <laughs> I think I think she just she really and even today, I mean, Vicki Lawrence, who she worked with on Mama's Family and the Carol Burnett show. Yeah. Vicki Lawrence said that Carol Burnett said her last words were Alan. And it's sort of it's a sweet, wow. sweet sort of love affair that they had that just lasted until the end of her life, which is incredible. You know, you think of someone like that, you know, you just mentioned Carol Burnett. Oh, my goodness. You know, the company that Betty White has kept over the years is yeah. uh, is astounding. And even hearing the people that have come out and uh, and spoke out since she had passed, I believe I read somewhere there was a quote from Robert Redford that said he had a crush on Betty. Yeah. Yeah, because she said that was the that was the one person she didn't have in Hollywood was Robert Redford, <laughs> which is, I mean, pretty great. But she even had that with so many people. Like even I think isn't Ryan Reynolds a Canadian? Like she even yep. had like a, a like a flirting relationship with Ryan Reynolds. So like it spanned from old to young. She was always relevant and a huge love of animals. Huge, huge. I mean, that's and there's something happening right now, which is really, really exciting. So there's a lot planned around her birthday, January 17th, the movie and all kinds of things. Mm. And now it's being turned into sort of a campaign for everyone on her birthday on January 17th to donate five dollars or whatever you can to an animal rescue shelter or organization or just do something for animals. That's the best way to remember Betty. Uh, you said that uh, that Alan was the last thing she mentioned. What do we know? What do you know? What have you learned about her passing in her last uh, few moments, her last her last days? See, I love that question because, you know, people there's been a lot of sort of question about like her last days and, you know, how did she die and all these things. And I'm like, guys, she was ninety nine. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> what was the cause of death? Dead. What was she the was, cause of death? Yeah, she yeah. was the cause of death is old age. That's what yeah, the cause exactly. of death. 
And yeah. it's there's no surprise that she died. It's sad that she died. But guys, she's yeah. 99. That's what she died of. <laughs> yeah, good point. You know, and many saying, oh, if she'd only made it to uh, 100. And I'm thinking, well, who does that help? Betty or just us? You know, does that yeah, make exactly. us feel good? That's our selfish want for her to live forever. And unfortunately, we, we can't have that. And, you know, has has outlived a lot of the peers that she worked with uh, over the years on these shows, which is still it must be astounding, uh, you know, for her in her later years to have to have survived these people. It's incredible that she's just I mean, even on the Golden Girls, she was the oldest one. She was older than Sophia Estelle Getty. Like she was the oldest Golden Girl and the last to live, which is sort of surprising and wonderful. What do you think she'll be remembered for most? I mean, my goodness, there's so there's such a body of work there when it comes to her TV work and such. What do you think? I, you know, like even, I just remember I saw a clip too, and I remember the, watching this with my parents with her and the old Johnny Carson show, and they would yeah. do the Tarzan sketches, and she would yeah. do Jane all the time, and that was yeah. an ongoing piece that they that, that she did as well. What do you think is going to stand out? I mean, which which one of her roles do you think was the biggest? I think you really said it perfectly. It's that, and I think the Golden Girls was probably her biggest, but I don't think that's what she's going to be remembered for. I think she's going to be remembered for because of exactly that. It's a familial connection that she has with people. It's my, I, I watched her with my grandmother or with my grandfather or yeah. with this. And it's that kind of, it's almost a Jimmy Stewart level sort of connection that you have of, I watched it with a family member and I remember my family member who might be gone because of this person. And that's, that's who she is. That's what she'll be remembered for most. I think surprised that she's has this level of stardom and she's a TV star. No, not a surprise because as opposed to a film star, I mean, and she, she had small roles in films, but TV, she was perfect for television because of, because of who she was. We wanted her in our homes. We wanted her. She had an Oprah effect in that way where she was just sort of our friend through the television and we connected with her and never wanted to let her go. You know, I was watching the episode and I remember seeing the Saturday Night Live episode when it aired the first time, uh, but watching again over the over the weekend and you hear all kinds of wild stories about what it's like to be on the set of Saturday Night Live over the week when they write and record and, and do everything that they do. You have to wonder how someone like a Betty White fits into this. But, you know, yeah. being the consummate professional, I'm sure she was perfect. Well, Seth Meyers said, and I don't know if it was a magazine interview or something, but he said that he's had a lot of hosts over the years and go to the after party. And Betty White was the only one that a stayed until the very end and drank the most. So, you know, (laughs) Betty White can hold her own. There you go. There's there's the perfect memory to leave on. H. Allen Scott with his host of Out on the Lanai, a Golden Girls uh, rewatch podcast and commenting on the life and times of Betty White. H. Allen, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. As you remember or may not remember, uh, Ted Michaels uh, graced this radio station for many years and retired last December 15th. I was uh, lucky enough to be a part of his uh, last show, which we all remember. And, and you know, how do you fill how do you fill the shoes of Ted Michaels? Well, you bring in a Dave Woodard. That's what you do. And I'd like to introduce you to him, although I'm sure you've heard him many times on this radio station in, in various forms and such as uh, he is joining us from his last assignment, which was at 640 in Toronto. Dave, welcome aboard. Hey, Great Scott. to have you here. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I do want to say you cannot fill Ted Michael's shoes. It just does not happen. <laughs> I can merely hope to like 
barely get into them. That's That's a, maybe it. stuff some socks into the end of them there, you know, like the clown shoes, just so your feet have something to touch up exactly. against. Exactly. Big socks. So is what you're saying, you're not going to be the DJ of the newsroom? Is that what you're saying to us, Dave? You're not going to, because uh, apparently Ted was known for that. Really? I did not know that. Uh, no, I, I, I like my music, but uh, I have not shared that with anybody yet. Uh, there you well uh, feel free to do so because that's right. the shoes you're filling also uh, i've been instructed to tell you that you're not allowed to touch the thermostat uh in the newsroom all right oh, like Ted, okay. they they literally put a uh, a metal cage over top of uh the uh the thermostat in the newsroom because ted was uh famous for i'm not sure if it was hot flashes or what it was <laughs> but he was constantly dinking with the news uh the thermometer and or the thermostat and people would go in and you know they'd get cold you get all sorts of things as a result of that. Gotcha. And uh, and I guess my next one, are you crusty? Are you a crusty person, Dave, at all? A crusty person? Are you a crusty person? Are you I don't crusty think at all? so. Do you have a, well, I don't know if this is going to work out, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> no, so tell us a bit about yourself, because I remember when you were here the first yeah. time. And you were you were producing shows. That's right. I was uh, a technical producer, uh, yep. and uh, I actually uh, board opted your show a couple of times. I remember that. Yes. Um, and uh, yeah, I was I was here twice before. I was here in two thousand three. I was uh, working with uh, Shona Thompson and Bob Bertina yeah. um, in the morning show, as well as uh, Roy Green when he did his show daily here. Um, And then I left for a little while. I decided to try to do something else. And then in 2007, uh, I came back for a very short stint before uh, heading off to another radio station to uh, start kind of my news career. So what made you decide to get back into it after you left? Uh, So ironically, uh, there was a talk show idol that was going on here at CHML at the time. I don't remember that. I don't know if you remember. Yeah, it was uh, it was. uh, uh, So I thought I saw it online and I thought, you know what? Maybe I still have a little bit of radio left in me. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to try out for the radio talk show idol. So I did. Uh, I had a lot of fun. My segment was incredibly boring. Uh, I was talking about <laughs> I was talking about the throne speech with uh, Chris Charlton, who was the uh, MP of uh, I think it was uh, Hamilton Mountain at the time. Yeah, uh, and uh, yeah, uh, during the time it was uh, I I remember Jeff Story was was one of the judges during my segment. Yeah, uh, and uh, during the commercial break, he said, "Hey, we've got an opening for." Uh, a part-time technical producer. Is there any interest in getting back? And I said, ah, I don't know, maybe. And the more I kind of went around in my gears and the, and, and the more I realized how much fun I had just even preparing yeah. for this segment to do, I thought, you know what, this is something that I really want to do again. So the rest is history, as they say. As they say, yeah. I mean, it was it was one of those things. I, I, I got a job in St. Catharines down the road, then went out to British Columbia uh, to work at a station in Kelowna there, and then came oh, back Kelowna's to... Oh, Kelowna's beautiful. Oh, so nice there. Um, but you do realize that after working there for a year... It's no fun to be living in a tourist area. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where what do you do for fun when you live in a Kelowna, right? Well, not only that, but it's You're like in paradise. You get annoyed by the tourists. Yeah, That's what happens. Yeah. yeah. Um, Good yeah. point. And then in 2010, I came back to uh, the area. I worked in Toronto up until uh, a couple of weeks ago. 
And uh, Ted exited, and uh, Dave applied, mm. and the uh, rest is history, as they say. Well, Dave, it's great to have you aboard. Congratulations. You. Good for you. Great to have you back. Anything we could do to make the life easier, um, go ask Jeff. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. And we're uh, enjoying, uh, we'll enjoy uh, having you around the roundtable as well every afternoon at 440. So good luck. Thanks so much, Dave. Looking forward to it. Thanks a lot. Catch up on the news and information you've missed. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. All right, uh, new restrictions in place. We've all heard about Omicron. We certainly know what our holiday was like uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks. Let's bring in Matthew Miller, Associate Professor in the Michael DeGroote Institute for Infectious Disease Research at McMaster University. And with us now, Matthew, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing all right. Thanks. So, uh, Matthew, we all know what we've been through here. We were kind of in the beginning of December, about a month ago, thought we were uh, well on our way and the vaccination was going good. And then all of a sudden it took an ugly turn. Your thoughts on where we are now today? Yeah, certainly in a place that I don't think uh, many of us would have anticipated, unfortunately. Um, Omicron was definitely uh, a wild card that I don't think anybody could have really reasonably expected. Um, as we were coming out of the Delta wave, I think most experts, you know, thought we were we were on a sort of better road out of this thing. Um, and uh, yeah, Omicron, you know, just, I think, reminded us all that uh, this virus can continue to surprise us. Um, you know, I think there are some uh, some positive potential things to look for going forward, despite the difficult situation we find ourselves in right now. Um, you know, we've accelerated third doses of vaccines, which is good. Um, and, uh, and I think one of the consequences of, of the tremendous transmissibility we're seeing with Omicron is that with a lot more infections, we're getting a lot more population level immunity. Um, and I think there's, there's good hope that that might sort of accelerate um, the rate at which this virus sort of transitions out of a, a pandemic and into something uh, endemic and, and as a result, um, more easy to deal with. Uh, you bring up a fascinating term, population immunity. Uh, are we at a turning point with this, do you think? Because it appears everybody and at least knows somebody or somebody's brother or whatever or sister who has it. So it seems to be, and, and, and you know, Dr. Moore was saying uh, there's like uh, over a 30% absentee rate in across all sex, uh, sectors in Ontario. So that's like one in three are sick. Is this the end of this? And I don't mean to be overly optimistic here, but is this a turning point in the sense where as we get it and as those that are fully vaccinated get it, get their mild illnesses and then move on, we are in a better place? I think there's good hope for that. Uh, Again, I think if I've learned any lessons, it's not to hedge too much. But that's certainly, I think, a reasonable thing to expect. Um, the good the good news is that with the availability of vaccines, um, we're certainly seeing that that vaccinated individuals are tending to get very mild illness. Um, and so that's that's great. Right. That that is exactly what we hope that vaccines are going to do is is make this something that's mild um, for, for the majority of individuals. The infection, um, the infections that are happening in vaccinated individuals will have the consequence of um, 
improving their immunity overall at the end of the day. And that's also a good thing because the type of immunity that we get after we're infected with the virus is fundamentally different than the type of immunity we get after vaccination because our immune system is is capable of recognizing basically all parts of the virus when we're infected with it and not just the spike protein, which is what the vaccines uh, are designed to elicit immunity against. Now, that's not to say that people should go running around trying to get infected, of course, or or that um, vaccines aren't useful. What the vaccines have done is made it more safe for people who do become infected, right, because their, their illness isn't as severe. And we only have to look at those that are unvaccinated and have uh, contracted the disease, uh, you know, how serious they are getting sick compared to those that are not, or sorry, that those are fully uh, vaccinated. Um, but getting back to vaccines, should we have started boosting earlier? Because here we are again, late to the show, administering vaccines. We were four to six, four to six months behind uh, the states in, in, at the beginning of this. And we just finished, you know, through the summer. That's it. We're, we're you know, we're vaccinated. We've hit huge numbers. We're doing really well. But then it was if we put our feet up, like, why did we not keep stockpiling vaccines in America? You can literally walk into any outlet and get a vaccination. Whereas here, again, we, we've got a bottleneck in distribution. Why did we wait till December to to approve a, a booster shot? Well, I think the data was actually quite strong in the Canadian context that we were experiencing more um it improved long-lived immunity relative to other jurisdictions, uh, largely by virtue of the fact that we had those extended intervals between doses, whereas in the U.S., the interval was very short, and we now know that that resulted in, in less robust and less long-lasting immunity. Were Omicron not to have sort of come out of nowhere, which is really what happened, um you know, the vaccines were holding up really, really well against Delta in Canada out until six months. And I think um, we would have been in an opportunity where we could have vaccinated people with less urgency were Delta still to be the virus that's around now. It could have been more organized and sequential. Um, but Omicron threw a curveball into that. The The issue with vaccine capacity is that um, it's always a trade-off, right? So in the situation we were in in early November, where case rates in the community were re- relatively low, we were in a position where we could do other really effective things like contract contact tracing and testing to help mitigate spread of the virus that way. But public health resources... Um, are are finite, obviously. And so when we're in this mode that we are now, where we have to sort of leverage every able-bodied person to administer these mass vaccination programs, something else has to give. So in the context of the big spike we're seeing, that makes sense because contact tracing simply, you know, it's unrealistic and ineffective in these major waves because our capacity is overwhelmed. So shifting effort to vaccination in in this context makes a lot of sense. In the prior context, um, I think a balance of efforts made sense in the context of Canada where the vaccine data was showing up that we were holding up really, really well, especially against um, severe illness. And uh, we were prioritizing 
the vulnerable sectors who needed it most. So prior to Omicron, we were already starting to prioritize uh, boosting people in long-term care, for example, because we know that they're at an elevated risk of infection overall. It just seems that by this point, uh, after the summer, there should be vaccine in all kinds of pharmaceutical locations. Uh, So, uh, you know, I mean, anytime you say everybody go get it now, well, of course, there's going to be a shortage of it because there isn't the staff, the systems. We're seeing that with testing. We see it with toilet paper. Uh, It just seems that after this all came in in the summer, we should have had an abundance of it, you know, in various pharmacies and various doctor's offices. So, uh, okay, maybe you should go get it. Then there's this graph gradual increase or, or, or interest as opposed to everybody's running around like the Hunger Games trying to get this stuff. Yeah, that's right. I, and I think going forward, that has to be the answer. We, we probably couldn't have escaped, given what we're experiencing now, the need for a return to these mass vaccination sites. Yeah. But going forward, it's likely that we will continue to need boosters. And I think it is essential that um, those vaccines be readily accessible in pharmacies and in doctor's offices um, uh, where, you know, people can just walk in on a on a neat basis um, and, and get vaccinated. I think it's likely that we'll also see in the coming months um, approval of, of additional COVID vaccines, which will, again, hopefully right. increase. Um, accessibility. And some of those vaccines may, I hope, also sort of increase the appetite of people um, who are hesitant to get the current types of vaccines because mm. the, they may have had the perception that these are newer technologies. Um, some of the vaccines that are in the regulatory pipeline right now are, are yeah. more akin to conventional vaccines. And hopefully that will help us reach some of the, the people who haven't been vaccinated yet. Matthew Miller with us, Associate Professor in the Michael G. DeGroote School, uh, Institute for Infectious Disease Research at McMaster University. Matthew, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber is on the board and Lisa Paleski and Dave Woodard in the newsroom making their way around the big round table. Uh, still to come, uh, going to talk to the Hamilton District Wentworth, uh, Hamilton Wentworth District School Board in regard to uh, back to online classes starting on uh, Wednesday. Also, possibly having the Olympics in one location all of the time instead of it becoming, well, a political hot potato that it's become with uh, what is going on in Beijing. I'm going to talk about that. Also, BlackBerry going dark and the David Bowie estate uh, has sold the rights to uh, his catalog. I believe it's about $250 million. So uh, one of the latest uh, classic rockers to uh, to be doing that. All right, uh, let's bring everybody in for the big round table. Great to have everybody here. Dave Woodard joining us for the very first time. Lisa Pileski filling in. Uh, thanks, kids. Good to have you here. Thanks, Scott. Happy to be here. And you know what I've just done? I've just lost my list of big round table topics. No, there it is. All right, we're going to start with the poll question of the day. Uh, the poll question of the day, which you can find on our Twitter page, do you support the return to stage two restrictions where we are now? Uh, 52% of you saying no. Lisa, we'll start with you. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? I don't think there's a right answer here. No, and that's, that's why when I, you went to me first, I was like, thanks. But Yeah, really? I, 
Well, I, 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 it's kind of, it's such a complicated situation. I don't think it should have been left until that late of an hour. I mean, two days before kids were heading back to class and it's like, actually, you know what, parents, you need to come up with childcare arrangements. Yeah. And, you know, that we're hearing in the news about the situation and with childcare in Ontario, it's a total crisis. And I, I think that this all really didn't need to be left until after the holidays. I, I, I know, I understand that Omicron is a lot more contagious than we thought. But surely we we had some idea that it could have gotten this bad and we should have had contingency plans in place and a lot more should have been done sooner. I think a lot of people are wondering why we are where we are again, searching for vaccines at this stage of the game. And, you know, but as far as, you know, and I heard the complaints over Christmas of what's going on with, you know, with kids and such. And, you know, I'm in the same boat, although, you know, thank goodness my kids are teenagers so that I, we don't have to deal with, you know, the, the, the parents are having to deal with, with those that are 12 and under and such. But obviously there's two things, two, there's two ways it can go. So you either prepare for this and you prepare for that and then you wait and see i mean at the end of the day uh obviously they didn't want to do a lot of stuff over christmas trying to leave uh as much of that untouched and you know we are where we are but i'm not sure we could have gotten any more information or any more prepared at the school level um you know it is what it is uh, uh, where i think the you know the the ball has been dropped is why can't we go and get a vaccine why can't we walk into like there's not supposed to be a shortage anymore there's the giant portfolio so why can we not just go in and get it i mean it's like anything as soon as there's a mad rush or a demand for something whether it's toilet paper whether it's testing kits whether it's a booster uh, whether everybody flushes their toilet at the exact same time we're just not set up to do this right away so why not a gradual kind of thing after we got our second dose and you go in and get it when you want as opposed to you know waiting for nasi's decision the beginning of december opening it up to to 50 plus i'm babbling too much and not letting you guys speak dave what are your thoughts do you you support the stage the return to the stage two you know what it was interesting because i think over the 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 break i i, I was definitely a little concerned about whether we should or not. But some of the numbers that, to me, are really indicative of why it's good that we did um, are, are incredible. The The biggest one, to me, is the fact that healthcare workers at St. Joseph's Healthcare, um, at Hamilton Health Sciences, uh, you know, we're reporting today that 700, you know, employees yeah, are self-isolating. That's the big issue. It's mm-hmm. not that people are going to get sick. I mean, we were looking back in April and, and almost 800 people were in ICUs then compared to 266 now. We're in certainly yeah. a better position. The problem is, is the fact that we've got healthcare workers that are being uh, worked to the bone and, and they're very, you know, getting close to burnout because of the fact that they have to self-isolate. There's not enough PCR tests uh, to go around. Rapid tests are not good enough. Uh, and, and that's the real big issue. So, sure, I had my concerns about going into stage two before today. But looking at those numbers, I think it was the right decision. Uh, yeah, 30 percent over a 30 percent absentee rate in Ontario right now. Well, Weber, you want to weigh in on this? Just about the only thing I can say is. I just want this to end. Yeah, really. I, so it, it's uh, it's hard to have an opinion when everything is just weighing you down, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. People were in a crappy mood prior to Christmas when this all went south. Now yeah. it's you know January, February, man, and we remember what that was like last year. Uh, do you think that uh, we should have started boosting earlier, Lisa? Back to you. 
Yeah, I definitely think this whole thing could have started a lot earlier. I mean, we were kind of frustrated. I remember my parents were uh, talking to me saying, hey, do you have any news on when we can get our third dose? Because they're seeing, yeah. you know, the U.S. was rolling out everything in, in such a quick fashion as the U.S. has been doing throughout this entire pandemic. They're just, you know, a few steps ahead of us. But I, I, I think we really should have had some idea that another variant was going to emerge, um, especially considering the lack of global equity when it comes to vaccine distribution. It's just, it's been frustrating and it feels like we just got too comfortable for too long and we kind of let mm. our guards down. And uh, I mean, not to say that we should be panicking, but I think we should have just been cautious and preparing for something like this because the experts told us that this might happen and it did. And you'd think once the mass vaccination started in the summer and people were starting to get their second dose, then why would they just not keep filling up the shelves? Why was like, why does there, okay, now boosted, everybody go. And then we're back to the same sort of chaos that we were before. Uh, do you think that, uh, I, I want to go with, uh, 30% absenteeism in all sectors, uh, Dr. Moore reporting yesterday, which basically means one in three have COVID. Uh, do you know someone who has or does? I've already admitted our family went through it uh, through the Christmas holidays, just prior to Christmas holidays. Uh, my wife had uh, cold symptoms for about two or three days. I had flu-like symptoms for two or three days. And the funny thing was, by the time we got our PCR test back, we were already testing negative on a rapid test because it took seven days. Um, that being said, uh, if you're vaccinated in and out, it, it didn't seem to be any great stride for us, any great problem. Uh, do you think this is changing attitudes once people are discovering more that are fully vaccinated or having it and moving on? I think it is, to be honest. I mean, there's a lot of people that I know that have either had COVID or um, have family that was affected by COVID. Mm -hmm. And I think especially with Delta, there was this uh, almost this stigma that it was like the plague, that if you got it, it was like, oh, that's terrible. And now it's it's still terrible. And and especially for, you know, elderly people and those with immunocompromised uh, systems. Yeah. But it's one of those things where it's like having the flu almost. It's yes, they're sick, but, you know, you stay away for a few days. You check in on them. You 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 drop off groceries at the front door and then everything's fine. They're they're back on their feet in a few days. I think you know, the stigma around it being a very deadly um, virus is starting to, you know, be normalized a little bit. We still know it's deadly. We still know it's terrible. Uh, is just because it is so transmissible, and we all know somebody who's got it. Uh, I think it's just become a little bit more talked about. I guess. Isn't and the it last funny? Doc- so go oh. ahead, Will. Go ahead. <laughs> Isn't it funny how we've circled back to the uh, "it's just the flu" rhetoric? You know, at the but that's if you're fully. But <laughs> yes, that's exactly. if you're fully vaccinated. Exactly. If, you, if you're not fully vaccinated, uh, good luck. Uh, exactly. Good luck to you. But now we're starting <laughs> to use terms like population immunity, which our last doctor did, and that certainly is good news. Uh, good news. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Obviously, school starts again tomorrow, online learning. Uh, we're going to talk to the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board uh, just moments from now. I want to play you a clip from earlier this morning with Rick Zampert on Good Morning Hamilton. And uh, this was Andy Kidder, People for Education. And this was on the issue of not reporting uh, what the test results are or, or, or what the uh, what the numbers 
numbers were each day. The Ontario government has now said that it will uh, stop taking those numbers, and there's concerns uh, about that. Here's what Andy Kidder had to say from People for Education. So in schools in particular, what they're going to keep track of is absenteeism and guess it's COVID. Not having data um, makes a huge difference. It's already been a problem in education because we don't have sufficient assessment of how kids are doing, you know, in terms of their mental health, their well-being, but also their sort of educational issues. Um, And to now take another piece of data out of there to not know how many kids actually test positive for COVID or to understand where there are outbreaks, it seems a little bit like throwing up your hands and going, oh, well, we just can't keep track of this. It's too big. Is that what it is? Is it too much data or not enough data? Or once everybody gets sick, does it really matter anymore? Let's bring in Manny Figurino, Director of Education at the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board and is with us now. Manny, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, Scott. Uh, thanks for the time as well. So, Manny, I'll put the question to you. Uh, will the board stop reporting case numbers amid the province's uh, decision to stop taking them? Yeah, listen, thanks for playing Andy Kidder's uh, uh, clip there. We've been reflecting upon this since the announcement came out um, about how can we be transparent to our communities and our families to make choices if we don't have confirmed COVID cases. But one thing I've been reflecting upon over the last two years was I was wondering how sustainable this was. And what do I mean this was? But people don't realize that behind the scenes, every time we have a confirmed case um, from public health, one of our staff and students, there is a case management team that comes together. And that team is the superintendent, the principal, and all the cohort tracking lists that we require. And as case counts started to go up, we wondered how long could we actually sustain this. Yeah. Um, we're, we're putting other resources in it. But we know that without that, we're now going into a place, and it's right, that we're going to start reporting around probable cases. And we're waiting for the ministry. They did indicate that they'd be sending us a memorandum around what we are going to be required to report in terms of attendance. Uh, but to date, we haven't received that memo. So is it a case of there's just not enough resources to do the tracking and properly uh, manage this the way there was before there was a mass outbreak, what we're seeing? Well, we saw how challenging it was last spring when case counts in the province, you know, got up to 3,000 to 5,000. But at any time of the day when public health calls us, the principal, the superintendent, our occupational health and safety team, they have to stop what they're doing. And it doesn't matter if it's what time of day, Uh, it it occurs. We put in extra resources to help us, but you still need the people closest to the school site to bring that data to the table. I can't speak on behalf of, you know, public health, but what I can say is the extra public health nurses that the province provided to school boards, they were doing contact tracing all the time. Uh, The vision of having them in schools to work on IPAC measures was a great vision, but the reality was that it was full-time contact tracing. And, uh, I just didn't know how long we could could sustain it. At least from our end, we were finding it challenging as we were putting more staff uh, on, on, on this resource, and it was becoming really complex and really challenging. 
so at the end of the day, Manny, we just don't have the resources to do this. You just you simply can't do this. There's not enough. And again, we're seeing this with uh, testing over the holidays uh, and people waiting long periods of time to get test results back because they simply, uh, you know, you're overloading the system. It's like buying toilet paper, everybody buying toilet paper at once. So is this something we should be putting even more resources too, or once you get to, you know, sort of an overflow mode that we're, we're at now, where there's obviously a great number of people that are testing positive and, and, and going through the cycle of it all, uh, do we let that just happen or should we be putting more resources into tracking all of this or is, is it a lost cause? Is it putting good money after bad? Yeah, you know, I'm not being a, not a scientist, not an expert in this area, but I could just tell you from school board operational perspective, uh, it, it was becoming more challenging week after week after week. And yeah. where we want our principals uh, to focus on is leading the instructional program and saving the school. But if they're being called at any point of the day to come to a case management to support the contact tracing, the follow-up with students and staff, it was becoming some of our schools that was the full-time job for our school administrators. Mm. So what do you, uh, obviously, uh, tomorrow, Manny, uh, back to online uh, learning and such, biggest challenges now for you guys moving forward? Yeah, I think, the, well, let's start by saying, the, you know, a uh, bit of frustration that, the, that the, the decision point changed over a three-day window. And, you know, we heard from families who were who were planning for, you know, two days of, of not being in school to now potentially two weeks. So uh, we understand that frustration. I mean, the good news is, Scott, it's not like we haven't done this before. We have, yes. we have playbooks. But there's really three models that we're, we're working through. First of all, our secondary schools, our students have already been provisioned years ago with one-to-one devices. So full remote learning in our secondary schools tomorrow program continues. Then we also have over 2,000 students who've been in our elementary remote program all year. These are the f- students and families who chose to be full-time elementary remote this year. Last year we mm-hmm. had 9,000. This year we had 2,000. So for those students, they're up and running full programming tomorrow. But we do have to build, build a little bit of a ramp for all our elementary students who are in person. So tomorrow um, our staff have been working hard, but they're working on sort of a half-day programming for tomorrow to touch base to make sure that the parents have, you know, the technology that they, they need. Uh, we also have a survey that went out yesterday, and that's closing today. We predict, based on last year, uh, that about 6,000 devices will have to deploy for families who just don't have them and need them. So uh, this week in our elementary schools, tomorrow will be about a half day and full programming Thursday and Friday, and we'll, we're going to be deploying devices Thursday and Friday. And we're also reaching out to our students who have pervasive special education needs. You'll see by the ministry and province expectation that we provide in-person support. Last year, we did that in a sort of um, about 300 students still chose that because we had some parents who said, no matter what you do remote, it's just not going to meet my child's needs. So we're working through conversations and they have to be very personal conversations. And then we have to figure out where that programming will be. It may be at the home school, but it might be uh, in some congregated settings because of the numbers. So that's the work ahead of us this week. Manny Figueroa with us, Director of Education, Hamilton Wentworth District School Board, as the kids go online as of tomorrow. Manny, good luck. I know it's a difficult time for everybody moving forward. Thanks for all the work you're doing. 
Yeah, thank you, Scott, for the time. Have a good evening. 459 News on the way. Forget about his two cents. Scott has an entire vault filled with opinions. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. It is 520. I'm Scott Thompson, Will Weber on the board and in the newsroom, uh, Dave Woodard and Lisa Pileski. Feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. All right. Uh, are we at a turning point in this pandemic? Uh, it's got to the point where uh, many have just given up testing. So many are actually testing positive and once you get to a saturation point, there's uh, really no uh, need in moving forward, I guess. Uh, let's bring in Thomas Tenk, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health with Ryerson University and with us now. Thomas, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, yes, thanks, Scott. Great to be with you. Uh, your thoughts on testing. Uh, they've said that now the province isn't interested in, in hearing the results of, uh, of COVID-19 cases from schools. Obviously, we're hearing that, uh, you know, if you get tested, it takes a long time to get results. The testing uh, situation is, 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 over, is obviously overwhelmed. We just t- talked to the head of the Hamilton Mountworth District School Board, which basically said, uh, who basically said, they, we just don't have the resources to do this anymore. There's just too many people that have become uh, infected. What are your thoughts of not having uh, those reported numbers? Do we still need them? Should we put the resources uh, that is needed in order to gather this information? Or once you get to a saturation point, is it irrelevant? Mm. Yeah, it's it's definitely you know an interesting point because we've put so much into the testing and, and case follow up and and whatever so far, and, and now it's sort of saying you know the system is overwhelmed and. Uh, and we, 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 you know, not, you know, the criteria for testing is is uh, pretty restrictive. So, so overall, I think, you know, we're at a point where we, we're just sort of, in essence, saying, you know, uh, we, we're just saying it's pretty much, you know, anyone who's getting sick with, you know, COVID-like symptoms, uh, we just ha- have to assume that it's that, that they're a case. And so, so in a lot of ways, it's on to individuals to to manage their own, uh, you know, infection. And and so. Uh, you know what what that really means is that the case numbers that are going to be reported now are really going to be a very much an underestimation of of what's really actually happening so so we're really into that phase where you know it's very widespread uh and and we just really have to assume that uh anyone with sort of cold-like symptoms is is likely going to be you know a, a what would previously been a case of covid we certainly know, uh, Tom, the the uh, fatigue and how everybody's feeling with the switches, the the changes that happened just prior to the Christmas holidays, uh, and now we're we're dealing with this. Um, should we have started? And I know hindsight's twenty twenty, but should we have started administering booster shots earlier? Because now it seems we're in the exact same place we were with the first dose and the second dose. That people are, you know, it's like buying toilet paper. People are lining up for this. Why didn't after 
after we got our second dose and mass quantities started arriving and, and the giant portfolio came in, why weren't these just distributed to all kinds of pharmacies and, and places that could distribute them? So then when people wanted a booster, they could go and get that on their own time as opposed to now everybody go get a booster and wondering how and why we're overloading systems. Should we have started this earlier? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, th- I think you know what we've sort of seen is that it's such an evolving and and quickly evolving uh, situation that I think that they were a little bit sort of hesitant to sort of roll out the boosters too soon from the from the perspective that you know we're, like say the World Health Organization and other sort of international agencies have sort of said you know we really need to be trying to make sure that uh, developing countries are, are getting help with getting their their vaccines and so there was a lot of debate around around you know should should developed countries who already had uh, you know a high level of vaccination coverage be be doing boosters given where where they're at and and i think that that argument you know was was fine when when we when the delta variant was was uh, was was the dominant strain but but with the uh with the omicron you know i think that changed a whole range of things for us and uh you know and so they're they're really responding to that change in this new you know newly dominant uh variant so so i think that's that's where that's coming from but but yeah it's it's definitely whereas you know we're we're at a you know, even from three to three months ago or so, we're we're at a different place in the in the overall trajectory of of the pandemic right now, isn't it? And and you know, I understand that we need to take care of all of the other countries in the world in order to make this uh, uh, globally vaccinate every. We have to globally vaccinate everyone. But you know, I, I remember Dr. Fauci, and I think we've talked about this, said several weeks ago, uh, South Africa doesn't need any more vaccine. They have plenty of it. Get your booster. The problem is they don't have the healthcare systems in place in this. And, and everybody thinks that if you don't get your booster, that somehow this is going to help somebody else in another part of the world. Uh, to which my first response is y- you can get them vaccinated after you get them fed after you provide clean drinking water for them. I mean, these are all the same problems, Thomas. Why are we pretending that we can, you know, flick our switch and make ourselves feel better and get these people vaccinated and and delaying our own? I mean, these are two completely separate issues. Yeah, yeah. Like, like I agree that, uh, you know, you know, different countries have very different uh, scenarios and, and and baseline health conditions and, and uh, environmental conditions, and so so I think you know there, there's that aspect of uh, saying you know what do we need to do to ensure uh, our own country and citizens of our own country are are as protected as possible while while uh, ensuring that our you know international obligations are are, are also outworked and so so it, it's definitely that that uh, that pressure on, on on balancing those two and I think uh, you know what what we've seen with uh, omicron you know the, the, there's definitely you know across the uh, across the world there's there's the, the move to say let's get the boosters out while while we also uh, do what we can in you know to support other countries.
Are we close to population immunity? Dr. Kieran Moore said uh, yesterday over 30% of uh, all sectors across Ontario are, ex- are experiencing absenteeism, which is like one in three. So at the end of the day, many people know someone who, who have had this. I mean, I we had it over Christmas. We talked about that. Uh, and come out the other end fully vaccinated and, and fine, thank you. Are we getting to the point where this is finally changing and and we're at a turning point i think we've talked about this before where everyone just there's natural immunity Mm. yeah so so i I think it's going to be sort of location specific and and even location geographic locations within within countries um you know some some areas will will really you know gain that you know what they've talked a lot about the herd immunity whereas whereas other parts other parts of the say country and, and uh, certain countries, you know, just won't won't gain that. And so, so I suppose we're at that point where, you know, and given the way this this uh, this d- disease is transmitted, we we're basically having to move move to a stage of how do we learn to live with this uh, versus feeling that we can eradicate it altogether. And so, so I think that's that's what we're you know sort of moving into that phase of of you know my sense is that we're at the end of getting you know probably three months to six months before the end of the sort of pandemic phase and we're we're going to be starting to move into that sort of what they call the endemic phase where we we have to we're saying what does this mean how do we learn to live with this what are the metrics that we use to say uh this is what we can live with in regard to you know hospitalizations and 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 you know various metrics and and what are the measures that we can put in place to that we can learn to live with this because we're not going to it's not going to go away but we then have to say it's at a point where you know the our overall uh society is is not not being impacted the way it was and and we're, we're able to to move forward and, and to live with it but but that living with it means that we we will have to think about you know are there you know measures that we 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 put in place that we didn't have in place before and 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 so so that that i think that's the thinking or or you know what we we have to start thinking about Thomas Denkate with us, Professor, School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University. Thomas, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Uh, thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. 529 News on the way. The truth and only the truth. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. We've done a few stories like this, and here is another. David Bowie's publishing catalog has been sold to Warner Chappelle Publishing for... Uh, $250 million. Uh, to talk more about all of this, let's bring in uh, Alan Cross, host of the Ongoing History of New Music, and is with us now. Alan, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. No, so far so good. Uh, we've been talking about this a lot of late. Uh, how do you determine the value of someone's catalog? Because we've been talking in the past, it's not necessarily just the old classic rockers. Some of the younger people have been doing this. How do you determine what the value is? Who determines the value? You look at the average revenue the song royalties generate each year, and then you assign a multiple to that. So if you make $10 million a year on royalties, then you'll negotiate whether you uh, the, pay, the, the selling price is 10 times that number, 20 times that number, 30 times that number, whatever. And that's, that's how you uh, associate, uh, that, that's how you create a, a selling price. So... Bruce Springsteen, uh, I think he was making, I did the calculations last week, I think he was making $18 million a year on music royalties. 
and they assigned a 30x valuation to that. So that works out to somewhere around 300 or 550 million dollars. So basically, you're trying to project uh, what you think this company can make with your music in the next uh, X number of years. Or, yeah, but there's so much. many different more platforms. I mean, you could be way off on this, could you not? Well, you could, and this is the this is what's going on right now because we really don't know how much this music is going to generate going forward. However, these companies that are buying these catalogs know that they have to first make their money back and secondly generate a profit. These companies are public, and they have investors, and they're going to demand a return on their investment. So there's a lot of negotiation and a lot of guesswork that goes into how much this music can be, uh, and the word is exploited, or uh, the phrase is unlock the value of this music over the next, not years, but decades. So uh, what it's going to be up to these companies that are buying these catalogs, they are going to have to put this music to work in some way so they recoup their investment and return uh, a, a profit. So you said put this music to work. Okay, let's just assume you've just bought a catalog. What do you do now? Do you just start trying to farm this out to every uh, movie production company, every commercial company, to try to get as much of this stuff exposed as possible? Well, that's one part of it. So you would look at licensing this music to TV shows, to movies, to movie trailers, uh, to TV commercials and product endorsements, that sort of thing. The other thing that you would do is get younger artists or other artists who cover that cover these songs, mm. which would generate revenue. You would probably go to TikTok right away and say, hey, listen, we would like to uh, discuss a licensing agreement so you can use our artist music on, on TikTok. And then you're going to look at Spotify and the streaming music services. Uh, streaming is still a relatively new thing. It's only been around, you know, since 2008, really. And uh, there, that's a big untapped uh, opportunity for a lot of heritage artists. Now, what we found out so far is that uh, about 66%, about two-thirds of all the music that's streamed these days is from music that's more than two years old. And as the generation that grew up with streaming gets older and older and older, they're going to be streaming everything, mm. including a lot of older stuff. And uh, so these companies will be really looking to goose the streaming numbers of the songs in the catalogs that they buy. Would David Bowie have been working on this prior to his death, or would this have been something his, his estate works on after? Well, let's put it this way. Back in 1997, David Bowie was part of something called Bowie Bonds, where he put up the future yeah. royalties of a couple of dozen albums as collateral for these bonds, which would uh, generate interest over the next 10 years. He was paid $55 million. With that $55 million, he you know, continued his career, and he also used it to buy back the rights to some of the music that he had lost back in the 1970s. At the end of 2007, the bonds matured, and Bowie got his songs back. So this is the second time those songs have been sold. Hmm. So with the estate... Uh, they probably, well, this, this, you know, Bowie's been dead for five years now, so he wouldn't have seen this frenzy of, of, of song catalog purchases. But his estate would be very, very familiar with the whole procedure, which is why they have probably been negotiating for a very long time to, to sell this to Warner Chapel. Uh, and, you know, $250 million U.S. dollars, that's a quarter of a billion dollars. That's pretty good. And what this does, and here's something that we really, you know, we really have to understand 
is that this is not selling out. This is simply like going to a payday loan place and getting your money up front, except, you know, a little, maybe a little mm. less icky. Um, this is money that you would have earned had you been alive long enough to earn it. So the, it's, it's your work. The money is, 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 the money is there. It's being generated. You're just getting it all up front rather than uh, waiting for it to come in. When you do that, you have to look at U.S. tax law. If you are getting royalty checks on a regular basis, every three months, every six months, every 12 months, whatever it is, the U.S. government looks at that as income. It's like if you had a job, that would be your salary, and it would be taxed accordingly, depending on the state that you're living in. Uh, that could be you know, 30%, 40%, 50%, plus whatever federal tax that you have to pay on top of that. However, there's a loophole in U.S. tax law that says if you sell all your rights up front in a big chunk, that's a capital gain. Wow. And that will be taxed at 20%. So if you're talking about $250 million in the case of David Bowie, if you're talking about you know $400 million in the case of Bob Dylan, if you're talking $550 million in the case of Bruce Springsteen, you know when you're talking the difference of taxes between 20% and 50%, that's a huge number. Yeah, is it so over? You, you get to keep that money, and then you get to determine where it goes with your heirs, with your estate, with uh, whoever else. Alan Cross with us, host of the ongoing history of new music. David Bowie, the latest to or his estate to uh, sell the artist publishing catalog for $250 million. Alan, as always, thanks much for the time. Be well. You bet. You too. If you're all about drama and gossip, well, this isn't for you. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Remember when BlackBerry, like, uh, my goodness, I remember politicians and, and leaders saying, hey, Canadian, look at this, look at this, taking the world by storm, and it's all out of KW. Uh, and then, uh, boom. Uh, the rest is history, as they say. Uh, technology travels pretty quickly, and now a BlackBerry model that you may have loved uh, may just be on your desk as a paperweight. Let's bring in Carmi Levy, tech analyst. He is with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. This was a huge deal. This was Canada's baby. This put us on the map when it started. What happened? Well, they, uh, you know, it, it, it's a classic tech story where a company... Uh, creates a market. For many of us, our first smartphone was a BlackBerry. They really defined it in the early days. Um, but then they, they started to believe their own headlines. They felt that uh, their model, their approach was, was you know, in, in, you know, invulnerable, that no one could come up with anything better, and that smartphones had to have keyboards, that touch screens were, uh, were like toys, that no one could take them seriously, uh, that all that mattered was what the corporate IT department cared about, that consumers didn't really matter. And then Apple came along, and of course, we all know what happened next. They cleaned their clock. So, you know, BlackBerry rode the wave, uh, deservedly so initially, uh, but then they failed to account for uh, the changing winds in the smartphone market. Apple took advantage of it. Google took advantage of it. The rest, of course, is history. Uh, by the time they introduced touchscreen models, it was too little too late, and it was inevitable that they would fade. So what happened to BlackBerry? How did they reposition? So, you know, BlackBerry tried uh, a number of things. You know, they introduced uh, BlackBerry 10, BB10, which was kind of their, you know, update to their classic operating system, a number of devices based on it. Those failed. 
to get any kind of traction. Then they, they said, okay, we're not going to introduce devices with our operating system. We're going to use Android. And uh, that worked for a few years, but also they were just mainly niche devices for people who absolutely had to have their physical keyboards. But for everyone else, the rest of the market had already moved on. Uh, then they got out of the hardware business completely and, and, uh, and licensed it out. So if you bought uh, a BlackBerry device in recent years, it wasn't from BlackBerry, the company. It was BlackBerry licensing it to TCL, for example. Uh, and now we're waiting for another company to slap a BlackBerry sticker on a device and start selling it. Maybe we'll see it this year. Maybe we won't. But BlackBerry, the company, of course, is now completely out of the smartphone market. Uh, and instead, they are a software security and services company and doing quite well in that market. But of course, we don't hear about them because it isn't something that you and I can walk into a store and buy. So what has happened or what will happen to the BlackBerry phones? Are they are they toast? Is that it? Or is it just certain models? Pretty much. So certain models. So if you have a more recent BlackBerry branded device that runs on Android, none of this applies to you. It will continue right. to work for as long as you want. Just keep updating Android as long as you can and you'll be okay. Um, it, this is for older Blackberries running the BB10 operating system or the BlackBerry Classic operating system. So, for example, if you have a BlackBerry Bold or a BlackBerry Passport, uh, anything basically before they made the switch to Android. So, really, these are devices that have been on on sale that the newest one was released in 2014, early 2015. So, they are already really old. Uh, our premier, Doug Ford, of course, uh, uses cl- classic Blackberries, buys them used for 150 bucks a piece because he just doesn't want to use anything else. Uh, he's going to have a problem, and anyone else who's still using these will have a problem, because... As the company today, they're turning off what are called provisioning services. Basically, over time, those old BlackBerry devices will lose the ability to communicate with telephone networks. They'll lose the ability to send and receive emails, make phone calls, call 911, send and receive text messages. So essentially, they will not be able to do what we need phones to do, and they will go dark. So if you've got one of those devices, the clock is now ticking. Could happen tomorrow, could have already happened, could happen a month from now, could happen six months from now. But bottom line is, if you're still using one of those old devices, you probably want to start looking for a new one. How often are business professors pointing to BlackBerry as an example of of what not to do, of what happened when technology gets away from you? I remember when uh, things began to turn for BlackBerry and sort of the companies, you know, as a as an analyst and as a journalist, I was having difficulty getting them on on the phone to comment on anything. They, they essentially they believe their own publicity and they wouldn't speak to people who who uh, who sort of didn't tire at the corporate line. And I said at the time, this is going to go down in history as you know a a textbook study for case studies in business school. Watch. Uh, and that's exactly where we're at now is that what not to do when you are a startup or a tech company, uh, when you lead your market, when you create your market, um, you know, this is an example of how you need to pivot and how you need to have your eyes wide open and you need to take threats like Apple and Google much more seriously than BlackBerry did. And so I think, you know, the, 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 the silver lining in all of this is that there is now an ecosystem of tech companies in southern Ontario um, that are all staffed and founded by a lot of ex-BlackBerry people who've learned these lessons. And so Canada's tech industry is a lot stronger because of it. But, of course, BlackBerry, the company, had to endure a lot of pain in order to get there. That was my next question, uh, Carmi. Uh, obviously, BlackBerry was a poster boy way back when of what to do right, and Canada's cutting technology. Have we dipped because BlackBerry has dipped, or as you say, we've just gone on to other things? 
I think we went through a valley for a little while, and part of it was because for the longest time, BlackBerry was like the 800-pound gorilla in Canada's tech market. It consumed all the oxygen in the room, got all of the attention, got all of the funding, uh, and no one really wanted to pay attention to any other tech startups because BlackBerry was essentially eclipsing them all. But once BlackBerry kind of went through its troubles and you know re-established itself as a software services and security company, um, I think we came up the the other side of the valley, so to speak. And I think uh, a lot of smaller companies with a more rational business roadmap uh, have established themselves and have learned to to apply those lessons. They're a lot more in touch with their markets. They're doing a lot more market research. They are um, a lot more humble. Uh, you know, you, you kind of hear this all mm. the time, and it was my experience as well. Wasn't a very humble company, and of course, in tech, you need you obviously you need to have uh, you know some courage, but you also need a little bit of humility too. And so, I think as a as an ecosystem, as a tech uh, market, uh, the Canadian technology market is in much better shape now because of it. But of course, sometimes you have to endure a little bit of hardship in order to get there, and I think we're way over that now, and we're in much better shape because of that. Carmi Levy with us, tech analyst. By the end of today, some BlackBerry models, early models, uh, no longer function uh, as the BlackBerry goes the way of the Dodo. Uh, Carmi, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.